0: You know, in the days of the Old Testament, the perennial question always on the minds of the Jews was, who is the child of the serpent, child of the woman who would crush the serpent's head? That's the question. Who is the one who would come on the scene of history and crush the head of the serpent? That's the question. And that question may not exactly resonate with us, but it totally should, because that question, you understand, lies at the center of history. That question has to do with the cosmic drama of redemption unfolding in the world. That question should really, really matter to us, because that question concerns the Messiah and his destruction of sin and evil, and even of Satan himself. And you know that question comes from Genesis chapter 3 which is pretty profound stuff because the same chapter in which the serpent lured our parents to destroy the human race, God promised that a redeemer would come on the scene of history and restore the human race. He would crush the head of the serpent. He would reverse the curse and break the spell and put death to death and literally undo everything Adam had done. But you see, ever since that initial promise, the Jews were looking and waiting for the great serpent crusher to come on the scene of history and make things right. And occasionally, God would tip his hand and reveal just a little bit more about his identity. For instance, we learn in Genesis 49 that he would be a king from the tribe of Judah and that all the nations would obey him. Numbers 24, he's called the star of Jacob, and he bears a scepter, and he crushes the foreheads of his enemies. Psalm 2, he appears again, and this time as the Messiah and the Son of God and the great king who one day would rule the ends of the earth. Second Samuel 7, he appears again, and this time he is from the line of David, and he would have an eternal kingdom and reign forever. And on and on it goes. God leaves little breadcrumb breadcrumb trails as to the identity of the Messiah. But you see, it is the prophet Isaiah who takes the identity of the Messiah and simply sends it into theological orbit. What I mean is, for whatever reason, God chose Isaiah to reveal never-before-seen glory of the Messiah more than any other prophet who came before him. And what he reveals this morning, you've seen before, you've heard before, you've read before a thousand times in your life, particularly during Christmas time, and yet here is the text. A child shall be born to us. A son shall be given to us. And the dominion, the dominion will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And that's him. There he is, the, the promised Redeemer who would come and crush the head of the serpent, who we know to be Jesus Christ himself. And I'll just tell you, this prediction of the Messiah could not have come at a better time in Isaiah's prophecy. Because you know that with a couple notable exceptions, it has been bad news for two straight chapters. Hasn't it? Chapter 7 and 8, you remember, unfold for us the saga, the sad saga of the Syro-Ephraimite War, which basically means that Judah was caught in the middle of a political crossfire that had the potential to wipe them out of existence. The king, the beast of Assyria, comes from the east. Two wicked kings are trying to invade from the north, and so here is Judah caught in the middle, and they look to the king to lead them and tell them what to do. The problem is the king of Judah is a coward and a fool. And he has just pulled a political maneuver so stupid that it jeopardizes the existence of his entire country, which would bring all of God's promises crashing to the ground. So what does he do? What does he do? The king of Assyria, you remember, he sends a check. King Ahaz, king of Judah, sends a check to Assyria to pay him off and buy his protection. The problem with that is, the problem with that is, Isaiah says, is that the king of Assyria is going to turn on you. And he is going to almost wipe you out of existence. And you see, here's the thing. If you were living in Judah in that day, you too would be tempted. You'd be tempted to forget who's actually in charge what actually matters, who truly satisfies the soul, and who alone you could trust to save the world. You too would be tempted to forget the happily ever after of a king who would restore again the paradise which once was lost, which is precisely what Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7 is designed to do, and it is timely and so desperately needed for them and for us. Here is the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's skull. Here is the king from the line of David who will come and make things right in the end. Here is the one who will bring paradise back to the earth. And what you have to understand is that what makes this prophecy so intriguing is that its fulfillment in history happens in stages. Some of the things that you're about to see here in the text have been fulfilled in part. The Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. He is fully God. He is from the line of David. He is the king who will come. He he is the one, the heir of the Davidic throne. He does have all authority. That is true. But at the exact same time, however, there are several things in this prophecy yet to be fulfilled. His kingdom has not yet come. Israel is not yet saved. The planet is not yet filled with peace. The sovereign dominion of Jesus Christ has not yet made all things right, which means very simply, the best is yet to come. Which means, which means this morning will be proof. Proof to you that prophecy is exactly the power you need to sustain you for the pain in the present and so here we go here we go this morning i want you to see from our text three features of the god king three features of the god king jesus christ that prove him to be everything you could possibly need or want forever that's where we're going three features of the god king that prove him to be everything you could need or want forever And yet before we see even one of those features, I want you to notice what Isaiah does to build the suspense because it is suspenseful and it's filled with irony. Notice in verse 1 the contrast Isaiah makes. Look what he says. He says, But there will be no more gloom to her who had anguish. That word but there is a really big deal. It's a really big deal because that is the reversal of whatever it is that chapter 8 just described. And what chapter 8 just described was really grim and depressing, namely the future invasion of an army that would leave the people in total despair. Look at verses 21 and 22 of chapter 8. Describing the people of Judah, they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they look upward then they will look to the earth and behold darkness and distress, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. That's what chapter 8 predicts for the people of Judah, and that is exactly what happened. In 30 years' time, Assyria would march into the land and almost destroy them. 120 years in the future, Babylon would march into the land, and they did destroy them. And I'll just have you know, the people of Israel have still never fully recovered from this. They have not. They still languish, you understand, in apostasy and unbelief. The covenants God has made have not yet been fully fulfilled. The Promises God has made have not yet been fully granted. The guarantees that God has guaranteed have not yet been fully fulfilled. And yet that being said, you need to know the game is not over. Because in chapter 9, something happens. Something changes. The sour note of judgment starts to fade and the sweet melody of sovereign grace begins to play. The gloom of despair slowly evaporates and the warm dawn of grace breaks just over the horizon. You can see it there in chapter 9, verse 1. Look what it says. But there will be no more gloom to her who had anguish. As in the former time when he, God, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But in the end, this is future, in the end, he will make it glorious. What will he make glorious? The way of the sea. The opposite side of the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. And I know that sounds a bit garbled at first, but you need to know, in light of what chapter 8 says, it actually makes a lot of sense. The, the days of gloom and darkness will not last forever. But you see, here, here's what ups the ante about chapter 9. All of the sudden, Isaiah is no longer talking about the southern kingdom of Judah. All of a sudden, he is talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. You know, the very kingdom that's partnering with Syria, trying to destroy them? You know the kingdom that chapter 8 just said would be destroyed and leveled to the ground by Assyria? That kingdom. That kingdom. And Isaiah is pointing to a time in the far distant future when God would intervene and take the train wreck of the northern kingdom of Israel and fill it again with his glory. Meaning his glory again would shine in that land. Redemption would come restoration will be accomplished there will be no more gloom to her who had anguish i notice notice in the text that isaiah talks about the land of zebulun and the land of naphtali and that doesn't mean squat to us but it should and it really meant something to them because these were what these were were the most two more two most northern tribes of israel and they were the worst of the bunch they were the most liberal The first to compromise, the first to be invaded by enemies. And Isaiah says there, there, even in Zebulun and Naphtali, the armpit of Israel, one day God will intervene and display his glory. And notice, notice what Isaiah calls that area. He calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. Gentiles, because there were so many of them that had invaded the land. Glory would come again to Israel. Galilee does that at all in any way sound remotely familiar to you it should because look at verse 2 still talking about Galilee Isaiah says the people who walk in darkness and I want you to change the verb tense to future the people who walk in darkness will see a great light Those who dwell in the valley of the shadow of death, a light will shine upon them. Think about this glory and light in Israel. Isaiah, throw us a bone here. What are you talking about? Not what. Who? Who are you talking about? Because you know, you know very well that when Isaiah talks about light here, he is not talking about photon particles or electromagnetic radiation, he is talking about a person, a divine redeemer who is and will be the light. Because get this, 700 years later, when Christ is up in Galilee, Matthew chapter 4 tells us that there are two tribes in particular to which Christ went and proclaimed to them the kingdom, and guess are the two tribes to which he went, Zebulun and Naphtali. And Matthew watches this unfold and he thinks, golly, that sure looks familiar. Where have I seen this? Where have I heard this before? Oh yeah, that's right. Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2. And then what does he do in Matthew chapter 4? But quotes the text. Matthew 4. Jesus departed into Galilee. And after leaving Nazareth, he came into Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Note, in order that the word of Isaiah the prophet should be fulfilled, the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light. Do you see it? The grace of God displayed here in the text, both by Isaiah and by Matthew, do you see it? This was an act of grace to begin in Galilee. This was unexpected. This was impossible. And in the minds of every person who lived south of these tribes, it was completely undeserved. And yet that was exactly the point. The Messiah was born and launched his ministry in Galilee, not because Jerusalem was hostile, but because God is infinitely gracious and loves to save the worst of sinners like us. But then notice, notice where Isaiah goes in verse 3. The prophets are not widely known for talking about joy, but that's only because we don't read them nearly often or close enough. Just look at the text. Isaiah now turns, and he speaks to God himself. Look what he says, verse 3. You will multiply their nation, God. You will make their joy Great! They will rejoice in your presence as in the harvest when they shout for joy, when they divide their plunder. Do you see what's going to happen in the future? One day, one day, joy again will fill the land of Israel, if it ever did fill the land of Israel. And notice it is God who will increase their gladness. They will have joy in his presence. They will shout for joy, intense and uncontainable at the top of their lungs as if they just discovered a treasure of infinite value, which is exactly what they're going to discover. And so the question for you this morning is, do you need joy this morning? Because that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Joy and light and glory. And Isaiah is about to reveal where all those things are found. The question is, the question is, what exactly is going to make this Ragged, beleaguered nation shout for joy. What is it exactly that's going to make them so thrilled and exhilarated? And I want you to notice very carefully, verses 4 and 5 and 6 each begin with the word "for." Do you see that? Which means Isaiah is going to give reasons. Intense uncontainable reasons for the joy that's going to come in the future. And each of these reasons build upon the other until they culminate, spoiler alert, in the Messiah and King himself. And so reason number one for intense joy coming in the future. Verse 4, why will they rejoice? For the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders and the rod of those who oppress them you will shatter as in the day of Midian. And you see the language, even if you're not exactly sure what he's speaking about, you see the language, don't you? Yoke and oppression and burdens that crush their shoulders. Doesn't sound good, and it's not good. And yet notice, notice those things will be shattered like the battle at Midian. Do you remember Midian? You don't because you weren't there, but you've read it. Judges chapter 6 and 7. Israel oppressed by hostile wicked Midianites and with a much smaller army, God supernaturally intervenes and destroys the wicked Midianite army never to harm them again. That's what this is only on a global scale. It will be a crushing and overwhelming victory. But reason number two for joy that can't be conquered, look at verse five. God will multiply their joy for every boot of the warrior in tumult and the cloak being rolled in blood shall become for the fire, the fuel of the flames. What is he saying? You can totally tell. That right there is a prophetic, poetic way to describe the end of all bloodshed and war. That's what that is. I mean, you look at it, you you can clearly see Isaiah is describing combat boots and military enemies, military uniforms covered in blood, thrown into the fire and burned. And the point is, just like we saw in chapter 2, that swords will be hammered into plowshares, spears will will be hammered into pruning hooks. In other words, there will be no more wars for which to prepare because... There will be no more wars, and there will be no more wars because there will be no more lust and greed driving those wars because the always winter, never Christmas curse of sin will break, and the spring of Eden will come again. And that all sounds pretty good. We want that. They wanted that. And at this point in time, more practically minded Israelites would say, well, that sounds good, Isaiah. And it's one thing to make these predictions, but it's a completely different ball game to actually make these things happen. I mean, is God writing checks that his power can't cash? Does God have a plan for how he's actually going to fulfill everything that he has promised to us? God, if there's a rabbit in your hat, I want to see it. How is any of this actually going to happen? And then that brings us finally to reason number three for intense and uncontainable joy in the future. And notice, notice, the reason for joy is found in the birth of a child. And to be more precise the very child for whom they had waited since Genesis chapter 3. Look at verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the dominion will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. As for the increase of his dominion into peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and he will uphold it with justice and righteousness from now and for until eternity. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. And there it is. There is the reason, the ultimate reason for joy and glory and light that will one day fill the land and not just the land of Israel, but every land on the planet, you understand. Here is the decisive explanation. Are you hearing this? The decisive explanation for how we know that one day all things will be as they ought to be. Here, now, in that text, is our deepest assurance that everything that is ugly and brutal and twisted and mutilated and broken will be restored and turned for good. And all of it hangs on the shoulders of a child who is God, who became a man, who lived and died. And the death that he died, he died for sinners in their place. And yet he rose triumphant from the grave. And it's just a matter of time before he comes again. And yet I'm getting ahead of myself. Because now we need to see the features, the features of the God King who has come and will come again. And he is, by the way, everything you could possibly need or want or ask for. And so the first feature of the God King is this, number one, his unprecedented arrival. His unprecedented arrival. Because how the great King and Savior would show up to the planet is surprising to say the least. Look at verse six again. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. I'm just in that opening phrase is, is just loads of irony and profound theological significance, is there not? I mean, it, it is so captivating That the deepest explanation, the deepest explanation that Isaiah has to give for how paradise will be regained and how the plan of redemption will be fulfilled is a child will be born and a son will be given. And notice the juxtaposition of those two verbs. Not just born, but given. Given means gift. Gift means grace. Grace means we don't earn the son. We don't deserve the son. His redemptive achievements that he would accomplish for the people that he came to save, we don't earn those. And thinking of children, it is interesting, isn't it? If you watch the culture closely, you notice that all kinds of movies and TV shows and sitcoms now have children as the heroes. Have you noticed? It's all the time. Children are the heroes. Bumbling dads and manic moms now have to learn the deepest lessons of life from their children. These little pint-sized protagonists who are the wise sages of the family or the moral compass of society. And that's weird. And that's ridiculous. And this would be weird and ridiculous too if Genesis 3.15 hadn't told us that one day a child would come and crush the serpent's head. This would be weird and ridiculous too if 2 Samuel 7 hadn't told us that a child would come from David's line and rule an eternal kingdom and he would reign forever. And it would be ridiculous if two chapters earlier, Isaiah hadn't told us that a virgin would give birth birth to a son and he would be God in human flesh. That would be ridiculous, but it's not. It is breathtaking because what this is is the incarnation itself. Notice the text, all of a sudden Isaiah pulls us through a time warp, doesn't he? He skips the toddler and teenage stage and takes us right into adulthood because you see, this child was not just some child prodigy. He wasn't only destined for greatness, he was destined for kingdom. Look at the text again, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Here it is. And the dominion will be. his shoulders do you see what Isaiah reveals about the deliverer to come He, he wouldn't only be human he would rule human history itself that's what the word dominion means maybe your version says government it's the word dominion it means authority it means supremacy it means royal power and sovereignty and yet you notice look very carefully at the text the word dominion doesn't actually have an object do you see that it does, Isaiah doesn't actually say over what it is he will rule. And the implication is he will rule it all. If it exists, he will have dominion over it. Genesis 49 says that he will, he will rule over the nations. Psalm 22 says that the ends of the earth will belong to him and he will rule over the nations. And what did Christ say in Matthew 28? But that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. And yet you notice, look very carefully the language. It is a dominion that he bears on his shoulders. He bears it on his shoulders. That is not a picture of tyranny or oppression. That is a a picture of sacrifice and service. He bears on his shoulders the burden that no one else is able to bear. Like running the universe, for instance. Hebrews 1.3 says that, Christ holds the universe into being by the word of his power. And yes, I do think Isaiah has in mind here a future kingdom on the planet in which the sun perfectly wields his authority. But you know that until that day comes, until that day comes, listen carefully, we know that Jesus Christ right now governs everything that comes to pass, doesn't he? There is nothing that happens in the world that has not been ordained by Jesus Christ. There is nothing that happens in the world that does not advance his global plan. And, get a load of this, there is nothing that happens in the world that will not, in the end, increase your joy forever. And yet, I want you to hear this. This is really important. The giant burden of running the entire universe is scattered throughout each particular member of the human race in 10 trillion little burdens that we carry on our shoulders. And the point is, the only one who can actually bear the burdens of your life is this one right here in the text. I mean, you know, I know, we all have burdens right now. And I'll just tell you, we actually don't have the capacity to bear them. And so the secret to our sanity, the secret to our joy, the secret to our survival is to view every single moment of life through the lenses of the absolute undisputed dominion of Jesus Christ. In other words, every single time you are tempted to fear or to despair or to throw in the towel, you need to ask yourself a series of questions that only have yes for the answer. I'm serious. Here they are. You need to ask yourself, does Jesus Christ have all authority in heaven and on earth? Yes. Is Jesus Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come? Yes. Does Christ uphold the universe by the word of his power? Absolutely he does. Is every single moment of my life under the absolute undisputed dominion of Jesus Christ? Of course it is. And of this moment, the outcome of which seems so uncertain, is even this a gift from his hand to trust him for the impossible and will it not in the end work out for his glory and for my highest joy? That's exactly What's going to happen? Why? Because the God King has the dominion. And that brings us to the second feature of the God King, number two. His unrivaled identity. His unrivaled identity. And I've said this before, I must really mean it. I love films about undercover cops. They're my favorite films, seriously. To me, there's something so gripping and dramatic and inspiring about a cop who goes under deep cover and risks it all, puts it all on the line, pretending to be someone that you're not to conquer the enemy from the inside out. That's a fantastic plot for a film, isn't it? And yet, I think we'd all agree that the incarnation, Jesus Christ, coming to the planet to save hell-deserving sinners was the ultimate undercover operation. All right? he, was, he came to the planet that he created. He was crucified on a tree that he created. He was killed by men that he created. He became a member of the human race to save the human race from the inside out. And yet, I think we'd all agree that, that the difference between undercover cops and Christ is that Christ didn't pretend to be somebody that he's not, did he? No, he became a man to reveal precisely who he actually is and who he actually is. Isaiah puts on full display there in verse 6. Look at the text. Yes, he would be the child who was born, the son who was given. Absolutely, the dominion would be on his shoulders. But notice, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And I want you to think so far, I want you to think about the pivotal role that children, ironically enough, children and their names have played in the prophecy of Isaiah. It's interesting, isn't it? It's a theme that runs throughout. Chapter 7, we have Shear Yashuv, which was Isaiah's own son, and his name means a remnant will return. Chapter 7, we also have Emmanuel, which means God is with us, which is a prophecy of the virgin birth of the Messiah himself. Chapter 8, double dog dare you to say this three times fast. We have Maher Shalal Hashbaz, who is also Isaiah's own son, and his name means swift to the plunder, hurry to the prey. And here again we have a son. We have a child born in chapter 9 who has not just one but four names, and each one of those names is just loaded with biblical and theological Significance. Notice again, he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. And, and you understand, these aren't names in the birth certificate sense of the term, but rather these are titles. These are manifestations. These are revelations of his infinite character. These names prove him, get this now, these names prove him to be a complete savior, a sufficient savior, a sovereign savior, a satisfying savior. Savior. Everything that he is, you understand, is what you were created to need and enjoy forever. And our souls find no rest until they find rest in him. And I believe Isaiah wants us to make the connection that this child here in chapter 9 is actually Emmanuel from chapter 7, that they are one and the same person. Why do I say that? Because to whom was the promise of the virgin-born son given in chapter 7? It was given to the house of David, the house and line of David. Here, notice verse 7, he comes from the house and line of David. This person here is one and the same. And so let's look at these names here, these titles. Name number one Isaiah says that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. And you know, you know that counselors are a dime a dozen these days grief counselors, guidance counselors, career counselors, biblical counselors. And the reason why you have so many is because there's not one single person who has all the answers. And yet, here finally is one who does. And we hate know-it-alls because they don't actually know it all, but they think they do, which is what makes them so helpful, unhelpful, and annoying. But here finally is a know-it-all who truly knows it all. Here's the one who has the answers to everything because he himself is the answer to everything. wonderful counselor, literally wonder of a counselor, meaning that when he arrives he would have such penetrating insight to the deepest complexities of life that it will literally cause us to wonder. It will blow our minds. And certainly this happened when Christ came the first time, didn't it? And yet when he comes again, his infinite wisdom will be on full and public display. You see, Isaiah is picturing a king who when he shows up, he will have such piercing, penetrating insights. A king who has the exact right solution for the most tangled complexities of life and the soul and the universe and eternity. In other words, when he shows up, he will tie up every loose end of history. He will solve every problem and he will restore again the paradise which once was lost. Do you believe that this morning? And what you need to know What you need to know is that this wonderful counselor who solves the dilemmas of life, you need to know that he is available to you right now. Because right this moment, he mediates his wisdom and power to you in the form of a book. Did you know that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is intensely, insanely interested in having your lives changed? And how he does that is through an 800,000-word document called the Sacred Text of Holy Scripture. I'm just telling you things happen, things change when you get this word absorbed into the bloodstream of your soul. All the joyful thriving and victory over those nagging, hard-to-reach sins that just never seem to go away is found in the moment-by-moment dependence upon the wonderful counselor through his Word. Name number two. The Messiah to come who has come and will come again, Isaiah calls him mighty God. Mighty God. Think about that for a second. The child to be born and the son to be given is God himself. This is one of the clearest, if not the clearest declarations of the deity of Christ found in the Bible, and it's found right here in Isaiah chapter 9. The Messiah is is God, Jesus Christ is God, mighty God. And think, think for a moment about how deliciously redundant that is. Isaiah didn't have to call him mighty God, did he? Because to call him God automatically assumes that he is mighty, and yet to call him mighty God just puts on the table that the one in whom we place all of our hope is not some rabbi who did nice things for people. This is the God who spoke galaxies into existence. And yes, of course, we see the deity of Christ displayed in the pages of the Gospels, don't we? Changing the molecular structure of water into wine. Multiplying enough bread to feed a football stadium. Changing the sea into a sidewalk and walking on water. Controlling hurricane winds with his mind powers, healing diseases from another zip code, making demons beg for his mercy, raising rotting corpses out of their tombs, all of that displays that he is mighty God. And yet, I'll have you know, we haven't seen anything. Because when he comes, the full and unbridled display of his deity will be unleashed when he comes back to take the planet that's rightfully his. Do you believe that this morning? I believe that when we see Yahweh worshipped by the nations back in chapter 2, that we are seeing a glimpse of the future and that who it is sitting on the throne, who is Yahweh sitting on the throne, is Jesus Christ himself because he is God, sovereign and supreme. And the reason why this matters to you this morning, stay with me, the reason why this matters is because as wonderful counselor, he is not only able to diagnose the deep, deep, deepest issues of the soul, but as mighty God, he alone is able to cure them. You need to know that if you are in Christ here this morning, the power that he used to create the stars and hold the universe into being and calm the storm and feed the 5,000 and raise the dead and tear the veil, not to mention to establish his kingdom, is being funneled down to you right now at this moment through the book that you're holding in your hand. Title number three. Name number three. The great God king to come is not only wonderful counselor, not only mighty God. Notice he is also eternal father. Or father of eternity or father forever. And just so there's no confusion here, this is not God the father. This is God the son. But see the point is, the point is he loves and rules the people he leads like a father he treats the people that he rules like the children that he loves, which is exactly what he does. You understand, this is not some distant jack and the beanstalk giant or some ogre in some castle upon whose door we have to pound for mercy. No, this king, this son, this God who becomes flesh and becomes one of us loves and tenderly cares for the people that he rules like a father died for his people. He liberated his people. He intercedes for his people. He will resurrect his people and he will reign with his people forever and ever and ever. This is a king who can and must be trusted. And so my question for you this morning is, can you, do you trust your king? Do you trust? Pour out your heart to him. Are you vulnerable with this king? The question is, do you cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you? And last but certainly not least, the Messiah is called number four. He's called Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace, which is interesting, isn't it? He is both king and he's prince, which is kind of like saying he is both the sheriff And the deputy. He is both the president and the vice president at the same time. He is the king who rules the roost. And as the prince, he is his own second in command. What does that mean? We need to understand that prince in the ancient Near East was the one who was among the people. He represented his people. He had the job of simultaneously representing the king to the people and representing the people back to the king. In other words, he was the sacred go between the king and the people that he ruled. In other words, what he was was a mediator. And as the prince, Jesus Christ rules his people and he represents his people. Jesus Christ is preeminent over his people and he provides for his people. As the prince, he is the one who mediates to you. He distributes and and administers to you all of the blessings predestined by the father to the very people that he rules. And you notice there's a little addendum attached to the word prince. What is he? He is the prince of peace. The prince of peace. What does that mean? We need to know that that word in Hebrew is shalom. And in the mind of every Jew living in that day, peace was not some mushy, mystical ecstasy based on your feelings. Rather, it was when God would intervene in history and make all things be the way they ought to be. That is shalom. It is to untangle and reverse everything that is warped and tangled. It is to make unsad everything that is sad. It is to part the clouds and make the sun of paradise shine again in the land. That is shalom. And you know, you know that some people digitally remaster old films for a living, don't they? Some people renovate old cars for a hobby, some people flip houses for a living and you have to understand what this is, the Prince of Peace, he is going to supernaturally remaster the entire planet when he arrives. He is going to renovate the entire cosmos when he shows up he is going to supernaturally flip the entire planet when he shows up this will be this will be a a global total facelift when christ returns to establish his kingdom he will reverse the curse of sin and renovate the planet from the inside out and make all things be the way they ought to be do you believe this this morning And you see this, this right here, let me me just say this, this right here is one of the reasons why our personal sanctification is so unbelievably significant. Do you know why? The power of Christ transforming our personal lives, get this, is a sneak preview to what Christ will do to the entire planet when he shows up. But you see, the global renovation of Jesus Christ begins in the lives of his people in a redeemed humanity called the church. We radically pursue holiness and life transformation, not merely to be good people or turn over a new leaf or to improve our personal quality of life, but as a witness to the world. But the only one who can change the world is the God King, Jesus Christ. So I think it's clear, you do, the, you do the math, you add up these four names, and it is clear that Isaiah, this is Isaiah's attempt to persuade our stubborn, forgetful hearts that everything you could possibly need or want is found in the God who became man for us and for our salvation. And very quickly, that brings us to the third feature of the God King. The third feature of the God King, number three, his unconquerable kingdom. His unconquerable kingdom. Because again, I think it's important to understand that many things that Isaiah has described in the text here have been fulfilled. They have been fulfilled. They are true and a thousand percent true and worthy of our worship. The Messiah has come. He is the heir of David. He is fully God. All of that is true. And yet I would argue that verse 7 and the entire whole of biblical theology makes clear that the final display of everything in the text will still be revealed and fulfilled in the future. I mean, think about it, the joy and faith of Israel in verse 2. They don't have it yet, but they will. The end of all bloodshed, war, and oppression, has that ever been a reality? Never, but it will. And it'll happen because of the Son who arises, because He is a King. Look at verse seven. As for the increase of His dominion and to peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, He will establish it, and He will uphold it with justice and with righteousness. For now and until eternity, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. You know, normally, connect the dots is a game for kids. But Isaiah's not playing games here because the dots that he connects are some of the most sacred theological dots in all the pages of Scripture. And what he reveals here in verse 7 are five conditions of the future kingdom of the Messiah. Here is your happily ever after. Here is your future home. Five conditions of the kingdom, number one. And I close with this. Number one, the impact of his kingdom. The impact of his kingdom, look at verse 7, it says, As for the increase of dominion and to peace, there will be no end. I mean, you think about it, all the major kingdoms of history got brittle with age and faded over time, didn't they? The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, even America is not built to last And yet here finally is a kingdom that will not decrease, but only increase over time. Like fine wine, the dominion and peace of Jesus Christ, of his future kingdom, will only get better with age. This is the kingdom we've been waiting for. Condition number two, the legacy of his kingdom. The legacy of his kingdom, because look at the particular throne upon which he will reign. It says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom he will establish it and he will uphold it. I mean, speaking of theological dots, this reference to David just might be the biggest dot in the whole Bible. Why? Because this refers to a promise made centuries before this in 2 Samuel 7 that a king would come from David's line and he would rule it all forever. Here he is. And that's exactly what the angel Gabriel announced to Mary, is it not? Remember the birth announcement? You will conceive in your womb, Mary, and you will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, by the way. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him, here it is, the throne of his father, David. And he will reign forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no Condition number three, the manner of his kingdom. The manner of his kingdom, because notice, so, so different from every other empire in history, this kingdom will be established and upheld with two things, with justice and with righteousness. In other words, finally, here is a king who won't take a bribe. Here is a king, finally, who will not tell lies. Here is a king in whom there will be no corruption, no cover-ups no scandals no dirty secrets nothing buried in the closet he will rule the planet with absolute holy sovereign joy here is the king we've been waiting for include this in your gospel presentations the kingdom that they the king that they're looking for and all the corrupt politicians here he is this is the one justice and righteousness condition number four the duration of his kingdom the duration of his kingdom, because you know, you know there are lots of ways to get a new ruler, don't you? Four-year terms, elections, impeachments, assassinations, and voter fraud are all ways to get a new ruler into position, and yet there will come a day when all those things will be ancient history. Look at verse 7. When Jesus Christ takes his rightful place on the throne, on David's throne, Isaiah says that he will reign ad olam forever and ever and ever for all eternity. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. The first king and his bride lost the planet. But the second king, the new king and his blood-bought bride will rule forever and ever and ever and you see if you are in Christ you will reign with him co-ruling with him in his kingdom and finally condition number 5 the guarantee of the kingdom the guarantee of the kingdom because the question is how do we know how do we know how do we know this isn't a joke how do we know this isn't a cleverly devised fairy tale how do we know this isn't just some made up dream to sustain a people in hopeless circumstances how do we know that any of this is actually going to happen look at the end of verse 7 this will happen because the zeal of yahweh of hosts will accomplish this there it is that right there is the bottom line Head on the chopping block guarantee that everything God has ever promised will be fulfilled, namely the zeal of Yahweh. What is that? All that is is his commitment to display his glory. And not that we didn't know it before, I close with this. Not that we didn't know it before, but we definitely know it now, don't we? That the child of the woman who would crush the serpent who would reverse the curse and break the spell, who would put death to death and undo everything Adam had done, the king from the line of Judah, the star of Jacob, the ruler from David's line, the one who would be slain for sinners and then turn right around and slit the throat of death in the resurrection. All of this is one and the same man. He's one and the same a do-it-all Savior who has done it all for sinners like us. The only question is, and I need you to hear this. The question is, do you know Him? Do you know Him? Have you yielded to the great serpent crusher? Have you ever truly bowed in joyful submission and surrender? Have you done so? To the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, have you done so? Because I'm not not saying this is your last chance to do so. But I am saying that it could be. It could be. And that Isaiah 9 has successfully removed every single excuse not to embrace Jesus Christ as your King and Lord and Savior and treasure of your soul. I mean, the, the offer of salvation is just sitting on the table. You would be crazy not to take it. There is nothing to lose and everything to gain. The arms of the God King are open and wide and ready to embrace and receive all bankrupt sinners and let them drink from the river of his delights. The question is, if you have not done so, will you not come and drink? O oh Lord, if this were a song, this would be the sweetest of melodies to us. We see the darkness of chapter eight transition into something triumphant and glorious in chapter nine. And O oh Lord, I pray that we would not leave unchanged, that we could not leave the same people, that we would be different people in some way. Please use your word to transform us, to grip us, to help us. We need you, O oh shepherd. We're just people. We're just weak people. We're going to struggle this afternoon. We're going to struggle tonight. We're going to struggle tomorrow with something in some way. And so, Lord, what we want is not merely to be better people, but we want to be a transformed people to reflect and portray who you are. We want to walk out of this room, O Christ, with the profound, deep-seated confidence that you are the great king who will crush the serpent's head and make all things right in the end. So we ask you that you would help us to be a people, a transformed people who mediate and radiate hope to a world that definitely does not have it. We thank you for this sweet and sacred time in your word.